It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We're back with episode three of the Gagan Pod. Welcome back to our repeat offenders out there, and hello to those joining us for the very first time. David Weiner with you again, and if that intro music doesn't have you buzzing for football, then I reckon our three panellists might just help your cause. David Squire of Guardian Cartoon Fame, or Infamy, great to see you again. Hello. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Brilliant. Good to see you. Now, some of our audience might have been avid readers of our next guest, one of football's great thinkers, Leopold Method, The Guardian, Fox Sports and more. Then her byline vanished and disappeared, but we've tracked her down. And Kate Cohen, it's great to have you at OptiSport. It's good to be back in the media sphere somewhat, David, but in a different capacity, I suppose. Find out a little bit more about what you've been doing lately, shortly. And finally, we welcome a great friend of OptiSport, Matilda's boss, Alan Stadjuk. We're off to Paris tonight, but thanks for stopping by here. Most importantly, are you packed? I am not. I'll leave that to the last minute, as per usual. <laughs> what are you doing here then? Well, at least we know that uh, the, the preparations for the Matildas will not be as late as you're packing. That's no, most important not. thing. Well, guys, as we start every podcast here at OptiSport, the Gagamon, we just want to know a little bit about what you've been doing in the last week, what's been your football tick. Dave, we'll start with you. What's the highlight of your football experience of the last seven days? I enjoyed the, the weekend of derbies. So you had the North London derby, the Merseyside derby. And then following on this week, you had Stoke versus Port Vale in the Checker Trade Trophy, and that was a pretty fiery encounter. So I wrote in my cartoon this week that watching these derbies as a neutral fan, as an element of voyeurism about it, you watch it from behind a twitching net curtain. Um, so I really enjoyed the, the drama of those games. Okay. And, yeah, following on from that Derby theme, being a Liverpool fan, I very much enjoyed Divock Origi's um, stoppage time uh, winner. And I particularly enjoyed the video that came out later of Everton fans when it was nil all. And they'd, in their previous two derbies, they'd copped the Virgil van Dijk stoppage time goal. They'd copped the Sadio Mane stoppage time goal. And when Virgil van Dijk scuffed his volley, the people filming themselves on stel- selfie sticks in the, in the Everton crowd, in the Everton Bay, they released smoke bombs only for the ball to hit the crossbar twice and for Divock Origi to tap it home. Early if, you, if, you take a, if you take a, a selfie stick to a football match, you deserve, match, it. You deserve yes. all the pain that's coming Absolutely. to you. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> and if you're an Everton fan. Both. Oh. Boom. Stash. <laughs> Do you have a highlight outside of the Reds? Uh, well, look, that was my one as well. So Kate stole it. But I guess my highlight was uh, the fact that the Ballon d'Or, after 60-odd years, have recognised it. That females play a bit of football as well and, and awarded their first trophy to, to Ada Hedeberg. So that was probably my highlight. Very nice. Yeah, very seminal moment. But as we'll touch a bit later, uh, made a few headlines around the planet as well. Yeah, for some good and not so good. Reasons. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, look, we're recording Thursday morning here at Optus. So it makes absolute sense to kick off with what we've just witnessed over the last couple of mornings, which included, I might add, the first time since 2010 we've seen goals in every single Premier League game in a match day. Even Southampton got on the board, which is outstanding. But the real theatre and drama this morning, Dave, was at Old Trafford, where United and Arsenal threw back to 
yesteryear with a high-octane, frenetic two-all draw. What did you make of that? Yeah, I think it was a game that people like me enjoy who don't uh, watch football for, from the tactical standpoint. Uh, I, I said to the, the guys earlier, I tend to watch football like a, like a dog. I just follow the ball around the screen. Um, but both teams seem to be willing to, to go for it. Uh, even Manchester United came out of their shell. They didn't play particularly well, and it was a game characterised by defensive errors. It's interesting to... I don't want to talk about Jose Mourinho too much. I feel like that's all I talk about. But um, after the game, he seemed to think that uh, United were the team that really wanted to win it, which was an interesting take. I also liked that he was wearing a black roll neck and talked about the soul of the team as if he was a jazz producer in the 1960s. <laughs> that, that, uh, that's a new look for him, and I hope it's one that continues. Katie said that uh, there's some things he can't control. Is that the dressing room or is that the quality of his players? Well, it was interesting after that post-match press conference. So he praised a couple of players for you know playing through injury and whatnot. But yeah, that comment that um, David alluded to saying that United were the only team that were trying to win that game and that Arsenal were happy for the draw. And then there was that amazing cut back to the back to the studio when Ryan Giggs, his eyes were bulging. He, was, <laughs> he couldn't believe what Mourinho had just said. So like the, there's... The pressure continues to grow on United and Mourinho and they've got Fulham next, so that's a game that they really have to win. So, um, you know, four games without a win, they're, they're falling further and further behind that um, that top pack if they want to make it back into the Champions League. So whether or not he's lost the dressing room, who knows? It's an outsider's view, but the the perception around the team is that he's he's getting into increasing trouble. So they need to stop that rut against Fulham and um, hopefully relieve some of that pressure on him. Stadge, the difference in mood between Arsenal and United at the moment is stark and it's amazing to think that United are eight points adrift of Arsenal at this stage of the season already. Um, it's proposed very interesting discussion about what Unai Emery has done and, and how they've started so well. They're looking to be starting to play a, a pattern and there's something discernible there. Um, what lessons uh, does his start at Arsenal teach us about basically the mistakes and what United could have done after Fergie because a very similar dynasty uh, that he had to step into and, and fill a void. Yeah, look, it's obviously a very tough one. It, it's hard to know what the cultures of both clubs were like beforehand as well and, and the egos within the change room. So to then just say the coach who came in after inherited the same environment would, would also be you know a bit tricky if you're not actually in those environments. So you know every situation, every club, every moment in time is a, is a different, unique circumstance which has so many different variables from the players to the coaches to the staff to the club to the positions on the ladder. Arsenal haven't been a high-achieving team for quite a while now, and they're sitting around the same level of the table that they've been for the last few years, and yet we're perceiving that as being being good and being successful, whereas if that was Man United and Moyes when he uh, took over, we would have considered that a failure. So our perceptions of where both clubs have come from and, and where they've been and where they want to get to are a little bit different as well. And, and when you look at even the differences between... Ferguson and Wenger, from an outsider's point of view, you have that difference in charisma. You know, obviously Ferguson appeared to be a little bit more dictatorial. Wenger may be a little bit more open and democratic and, and you know, more sharing these players' views. But that's just an outsider looking in. You actually don't know the dynamics inside a club. So, But all you can comment on is the fact that Arsenal are playing well, proactive football. I only watched the last 10 minutes this morning and they were in Manchester United's penalty box the whole time looking to win that Mkhitaryan... Uh, Volley, which crazy. could have been got, <laughs> the disallowed goal of the year. <laughs> um, a fantastic strike. And they looked like the team that were going to win. And I guess that's what you take out of it. That this is a team possibly on the rise, getting better. 
and Man United still flailing and, you know, inconsistent up and down and whether that's player-driven, coach-driven, both environment, we don't really know, but it doesn't look good as Kate just alluded to. No Pogba, no Lukaku for United. Again, big game and they're on the bench. It's still quite unfathomable. Um, and even though they were, more pro- they were more proactive and they were more intense, like the Old Trafford felt like the Old Trafford of old. It felt like Man U Arsenal of old. Quality, questionable, excitement on turbocharge. But while we can't obviously know what was inside those dressing rooms at the time, I, I want to pick your brain stage on what it's like when you walk into a dressing room for the first time and you have to establish yourself and, and it's your clean slate and you've got to um, change things up. Because what Emery has done, he's made some big decisions. He's frequently making early changes. They've got a fantastic second half record, tactical flexibility that obviously he's coaching the players and they're buying into that. But guys like Mesut Ozil, if they're not going to buy in, they're not getting a look in. Um, can you take us into the, the pressure and the mindset when you walk in and go, I've got to actually not only make an impact, but win these guys over at the same time? Yeah, look, it's hard for me. I have, I can't really relate in terms of coming into a new environment. I've been in the same environment for a long time, even though I've changed positions. I was at uh, Sydney for six or eight years. I've been with the Matildas now for five. I've been around the Matildas for 15 years. Um, so and through the New South Wales Institute of Sport, obviously had a long-standing relationship with players beforehand. So I've been doing it for 18 years. So I've never had to walk in um, as Emery did into into a new into a new club. But what I would say is that you have to impose your vision and your philosophy and your style, and then it's your charisma, your way of going about things, your on-field preparation, your off-field dynamics to make that work and make that happen. And you can see that the majority of the club and majority of the players have got have had buy-in already. And, and again, you can just see that in the way they're playing. You can see that in the way the players are expressing themselves, in their efforts on the pitch, the way, the style of play. It, it's all leading to a positive dynamic around the club. So, you know, it is a hard one. It's hard for Mourinho to come into Manchester United. It's such a massive juggernaut of a club and the expectations are to win the competition every year. It's not really... Even though Arsenal expect to win, I think their expectations have been dampened over the last five, six years. So for them to be where they are, as I said, is already a different dynamic in a press conference than what Mourinho has to deal with. You know, if they don't win two or three games in a row, man, you, we've got the perception that they win the Premier League every year. So he's done a good job. Mourinho, it's going to be tough for him. Um, I think it's going to be very tough for him, but he's so experienced. But, you know, it's not really for us to comment outside in, only the people inside are the ones who really know what's happening day in, day out with the players. Well, Dave, you know what's happening because you had Gunnosaurus leading the line in your last cartoon and it's a formidable first line of defence for us all to have now with their with their new mentality. But um, it was a really interesting midweek because at one point this morning when Liverpool were losing, Chelsea have, have lost, um, it looks like you know you almost give the, give the title away to City then and there, but instead things stabilised, results changed, Liverpool came from behind, Chelsea have slipped out. Arsenal are now on the brink of the top four, level with Chelsea. And Tottenham, Mr. Consistence again, they're third. What do you make of the reality of that top four now after? We've had 15 weeks. Um, Chelsea are starting to see a, a few more challenges than they previously have. Yeah. Um, where do you see the reality of, of the top four heading into the Christmas period? They're still trying to fit six into four, but if I think that uh, I hate to offend the Liverpool supporters to my immediate right but I still feel that it's cities to lose um, one point this morning as you say when they were when Liverpool were losing to, to to Burnley you got the sense that this could be a point where Manchester City pull away and you know win the title by March 
Um, Liverpool are running them closer this year, but I think they they missed their opportunity uh, a couple of months ago when they didn't beat Manchester City at home. I just can't see anyone catching City. They they just look at a cut above everyone else. Isn't it amazing? Because it's Liverpool's best start in over a century ever. They've actually. dropped six points yeah. in fifteen rounds. They haven't been playing the best of football yet. The discussion still seems to be that who will stop City? They they're a juggernaut. What is the reality? Because in full disclosure, we've got two Liverpool fans in the, in the house, and this morning at one nil down, it's like oh, this is the moment that it does slide away. It, that that gap opens up. What is the reality for a Liverpool fan at the moment? Picking up points, not at full pomp. Can you continue to keep pace with, with City in this in this moment? Yeah, having watched Liverpool for the last 30 years, these <laughs> are the games this morning they would have lost. Yeah. Um, and Kate mentioned a Man City game at Anfield, but but Mara's missed the penalty with almost the last kick of the game there mm. as well. So when you reflect back, they've actually picked up points in matches, whether they deserve to or not, but with a bit of stroke of luck. The Origi won the other morning, so there's already six or eight points off the top of my head that they've picked up that possibly last year and in the last 28 years they haven't. And they've been the perennial team to challenge the top four and lose to the bottom three or four and drop points regularly. So they haven't done that this year, and they're well in the hunt. And the year they lost the comp a few a few years ago when, when Gerrard had that slip, they were the better team that year, but Man United... Uh, with it was yeah, Man United were the more consistent team. A city, city, uh, city, city yeah. Man City, and ended up ended up uh, taking it with just Gerrard's one innocuous slip in that one match. So, you know, football's a strange game. Leicester showed that it can be done. Liverpool's way stronger than Leicester. They got way more depth, but Man City are clearly clearly the best football team with the one most thing amount that, of depth. Something I th- I don't know how you feel about uh, if Liverpool didn't beat Napoli next week and went out of the Champions League, that might. In potentially improve their chances of winning the Premier League if Manchester City go deep into that competition. And although City have so much strength in depth, they could afford to to rest players and chop and change. If Liverpool don't beat Napoli and go through in the Champions League, then they're consigned to the Europa League, which can make yeah. that as very very difficult round of thirty two, round of sixteen. So if they then want to challenge in that European competition, then that's when the fixtures start to pile up. And even just with a few little injuries that Liverpool have picked up at the start of the season, Naby Keita, Jordan Henderson, um, all of these little niggles that have kept players out for short periods of time, it actually starts to stack up. And that's probably been one of the most interesting things to watch about Liverpool, whereas last season they just had this incredible balance. And, um, you know, if you remember back to, like, the 5-0 win over Porto in the Champions League away from home, they were just able to steamroll teams. And things just don't seem to be clicking that same way at the moment. Um, I, I saw a stat just after the Derby win midweek, and Liverpool are overperforming their expected goals conceded um, by almost double. So their defensive record has been phenomenal, yeah. yet if you look at the quality of the chances that they've conceded, they should have conceded a lot more. So it's those type of things that you start to, to juggle with and you go, okay, they're not performing well, they're not clicking and they're not having the same balance as last season, but they're also picking up those results. So maybe that result, um, the consistency and result builds confidence and then things start to click. But that, that Napoli um, game in the Champions League will be massive because those types of games are what can shift the mood of, around an entire yeah. club and around an entire city. If they were to fall out of the Champions League, then it would be a big uh, you know, pop in that balloon. There'd just be this massive sense of deflation knowing that City, as you mentioned, they're so good. They never look like dropping points. 
Um, and if you start to fall away in the Champions League and then that pressure builds because the Premier League then becomes the only thing that they have to play mm. for outside of the, the FA Cup. It's fascinating. And I've read Jurgen Klopp during the week talking about that balance he's had to have in the evolution of the side. So knowing that last year they could hum because they, on the counter-attack they were so savage and so brutal. But this year's teams have adjusted. They, they're more aware of that and he's trying to get more control of games. That's opened up so many other questions in terms of the balance of the midfield, the, the rotation of strikers up front. And they're almost having to manage that evolution at the same time as trying to hold on for mm. dear life while this other juggernaut who, mind you, rested their big guns up front yesterday and still got the win, whereas Liverpool rested their big guns and had to come from behind. It's a really interesting challenge, and let's hope the title race can stay nice and tight while that's ongoing. But, Dave, what I want to pick your brain, and I know so many of our listeners and, and readers of your cartoons out there would love to know, is just to get a little bit of a glimpse into your mind because you're probably 24 hours out from deadline when that game is, is happening and you're in the you know 150 minute, 50th minute of stoppage time and, and Origi hits the post. What goes through the mind of a cartoonist with his narrative when Jordan Pickford does that. Uh, in that specific example, I'd set aside some time to, I knew I was going to draw a cartoon about the derbies this week. Um, so I got up early and watched both games. So it didn't matter so much that that game changed so late. What was more of a problem was when I was halfway through the cartoon and then Southampton sacked Mark Hughes <laughs> And then when I was three quarters of the way through the cartoon and a French DJ I'd never heard of before disgraced himself at the Ballon d'Ors <laughs> and suddenly I had to become an expert on Martin Solvig. And um, then you vented on Twitter to say, please, football, just stop. stop. Just calm down for two hours so I can finish this cartoon. Um, but yeah, you often have to react as, you, as you're going along. Um, and I had so much material this week. The challenge was to try and fit it all in into eight panels. Um, and I didn't even get to complain about Swindon going out of the FA Cup <laughs> to Woking, which was, I mean, that was what I really wanted to base the whole cartoon around. Wouldn't it be great, though, if your cartoons could talk every now and then? And your, your Australian version of the cartoon last week had a little bit of a weigh-in on the stadium situation in Sydney. And uh, I think your slogan on the Opera House, for those who didn't see it, was anything that angers Alan Jones is... A good thing. I think it was pisses off Alan Jones. A good that. thing. Well, now, just for context for our listeners out there who haven't listened before, of course, this podcast is available all around the world. So, Stage, when you're in Paris, Kate, when you're off on your next overseas adventure, scouting and doing all your work, you can listen to it. You can share it with whoever you're with. The, the positive of that, or the negative of that, is we can't run any grabs. The positive of that is we've got a grabs guy here who can channel any single person he wants. And because of that, Dave, we're going to mm. put you on the spot for your cartoon last week. Yeah, okay. David, you tell football to calm down, but I'll tell you who's not calm, it's Alan Jones. Now, if you want to be drawing all these things with my head on the opera house, well, I'll tell you what, mate, it's not your opera house, it's our opera house. You can't do that, and if you will, I've got my right mind to come over there and snap your pencils and pens in half and call Gladys Berejiklian, and I'll tell you what, you'll, you'll have to go. I, I just can't allow it. I'm sorry, David. Stadiums might be funny to you, but they're not funny to me, all right? Hurt me, mate? Good, good. That'll be it. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> even um, even communicating with Alan Jones in through this vessel is too much. It's oh god, it's um, even too much for me to communicate with myself in this vessel. Yeah, I just want to fight you. <laughs> I want to fight myself, David. Don't worry. 
<laughs> Did you ever think that when we asked you to come on this gig and pod podcast for Up to Sport, you'd be confronted by one of your cartoon panels in real life? I just think I need to have a word with my agent. So, <laughs> I haven't even got an agent. I need to get an agent, have a word with him, and then, um, yeah, we'll go from Oh, dear. Well, 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 compose ourselves, take a breath. Um, speaking of outrage, though, I'm going to go run through a few quick topics here. And one of them, as you guys have alluded to before, was the Ballon d'Or. Um, Stadge, I'm just going to throw it out to you, the word twerking. Yeah, look, I was a bit of a novice. <laughs> I had to ask a few people what a twerk was. That's how out of touch I am. Um, just for just but, for clarity for everyone that didn't know, obviously the Ballon d'Or winner, the first female winner, Ada Hegenberg, was, went up to get presented with her trophy and the DJ MC asked her if she could twerk or wanted to twerk and that caused Twitter outrage across the planet. And rightfully so. It's outrageous, really, um, to do that on that stage and, and such a prominent moment for, for women's football to have the first one ever and for him to ask that. But I guess that's you pay the price if you have a DJ hosting an event like that. Like, it's not a football person or a sports person. Um, it was just outrageous and, and completely out of order in today's society and what the standards that we have, especially in Australia. Um, but... You know, we live and learn, we move on and, and you know, hopefully some of those organisations do as well. Hegerberg, you know, addressed it in her way and she, she kept herself, um, you know, I, I think she, she played it down well. Um, she, she kept her composure and, and, you know, we can't, we just have to have total respect for her in, in how she portrayed herself in the whole event. But yeah, really it wasn't, it wasn't a good episode for the first ever women's Ballon d'Or and, and one that I think society will certainly learn from. And as we are here in Australia, we're continually evolving women's football and women's sport and, you know, to, to some respect, I think we're the leaders in the world and, and the more we can continue to push gender equity and equality in our society and in our sport, the better our society will be. And that's really what we have to think about as the big picture. I was just thinking about, the, yeah, the strides that women's football has made in the last decade. And, yeah, it was just so sad. I was sort of almost feeling sort of smug about how far we've come and then something like that happens and you realise that there's still a long way to go, uh, not just in Australia, but uh, I mean, the strides in Australia, the strides in the UK as well, with the Premier League and the kind of coverage that, or the Women's Premier League and the kind of coverage it's getting in, in England. Um, and yeah, something like that happens. And it wasn't just the idiotic DJ, like David Ginola, a football person is there as well presenting. And she's sort of pressured into having a dance with him as well. And you know, the obvious point to make is that no one was asking Luka Modric to, you know, do the Lambada or whatever. There's a, a modern dance reference. I don't know why we're going there. But, That's uh, for all of that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just awful. On a brighter note, Kate, though, um, Sam Kerr finishing fifth is in very good company alongside Certainly the male counterpart, Lionel Messi, finishing fifth. Yes, read into that what you will. But it's, it's great to see um, Sam and... and um, other Australians as well. We had the the Guardian top 100 women's players as well getting recognition for their performances in the last 12 months. Um, and as Stadge said, it's fantastic that um, the women's game is now getting recognised by being put alongside the men's game with that Ballon d'Or award and obviously the, the FIFA Best Award as well. So it's good to start to see that some of uh, sports' best athletes are starting to get recognised, rightfully so. Alan, what did you make of Modric taking out the, the top gong? Best player on the planet in 2018? Look, he certainly had the most impact. Um, you know, when you look at the World Cup and, and his efforts with Real Madrid, there's no doubt that he was he was possibly the most impactful, if that's a word, in, in critical moments, in critical matches. And, 
and led his club and country to to the upper echelons of of football. So, you know, he he is such a classy player. We we've been watching him for years now, haven't we? From the time he was in the Premier League to to going back to La Liga, um, he really is just a world class player. And and you put him in any team in the world, um, I think that's the mark of the play. If you had to put him in any of the World Cup teams, I think they would have gone close to making the final. It's a it's an interesting field, isn't it, Dave? Picking out the best player in a year. And it, it, Luke, Luka Modric is actually, a, a, he breaks the chain of goal scorers and glamorous players picking up the top gong. But one glamorous player who was um, annoyed that he didn't get the award was Antoine Griezmann, who said, I won a Europa League, a World Cup, what else do I have to do? I do not know. It's That's an odd statement for an individual to make in, in a team environment. But yeah. I do wonder about this whole Ballon d'Or season um, award season, you had Neymar who was at home playing video games, Messi wasn't there, Messi not in the top four, this kind of comment. Where are we at with individual awards in such a team environment? Yeah, I do wonder about the validity of individual awards within a team sport. Um, and those comments from Griezmann are pretty disappointing. You would, like, when you started that quote, I was hoping he would finish it with, it's a team game, like, who cares? I think um, Sergio Ramos, who's always good for an acid-tongued quote, <laughs> um, said of Griezmann that um, ignorance is blind. Uh, oh, no, sorry, ignorance is bold. So that um, that really speaks to Griezmann's um, sort of high opinion of, him, of himself. Um, Which you would have gathered when he released his own teaser video to announce he was staying after flirting with the move to Manchester United. So he's certainly not shy. He's had a bad week, actually, because someone in France wanted to name their child uh, Griezmann Mbappe. <laughs> and they were told by the registrar that it would be too cruel on the child. So, I mean, he's had a, had a rough week. Um, that reminds me when my, my first child was born and emails went around in the first day saying congratulations for my son and Golo because it was at the time Chelsea were winning the, the, the oh, Premier League okay. and I was like that's not, go away that's no chance you know um, my partner used to work with a lady called Notza and worked with her for years and assumed that um, it was a like a, a, an exotic name a foreign name maybe something from somewhere from southern Italy or you know mm. southern Europe and she got talking to her one day and said, oh, you know, where, where does your name come from? And she said, my dad's an Aston Villa fan and it's um, it's Aston backwards. <laughs> so, yeah. Charming. <laughs> Kate, <laughs> that's, that's dedication. Kate, it is nice, though, it's despite the whole idea of, you know, individual glamour above the team, it's, it's driven Ronaldo, it drove Neymar to almost leave um, La Liga to go seek that at Paris Saint-Germain. It is nice, though, to see the fulcrum, the heartbeat of a team, and almost a guy who led an underdog to the final of a, of a World Cup and, and has been so key of a three to four Champions League wins, it is nice to see a more refined selection in a way, isn't it? Well, it's probably, correct me if I'm wrong, if someone's got a better memory, it's probably the last time since Fabio Cannavaro where that real, because um, normally those individual awards, they go to that attacking superstar of the team, the person that scores mm. the goal, the person that um, steals the limelight. So to have someone who really makes the team tick and is just classy in all regards is, yeah, it's something quite different and it's it's fitting. That doesn't mean it's he is the best player on the planet um, and that's probably where those awards need a little bit of an asterisk around it because so much of it comes down to that particular major tournament, whether it's a European Championship year, whether it's a World Cup year. If there's not a major tournament, then it's the Champions League that has a higher weighting. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So the performances of Croatia led by Modric at the World Cup was what tipped it in the balance. Ultimately, yeah, Messi's still the best player on the planet, and for him to come in fifth um, raises a lot of questions. But, yeah, it's great to see, and, yeah, it's probably the, the first time in a long, long time that there's been a little bit of a, a, a um, less of a superstar pick, if we can say it that way. Are you angling for something there, Stadge? You, yeah. yeah, she said Messi's obviously the best player. <laughs> this is so subjective. Yeah. Like, they're awards. They're a bit of fun. It's great recognition for the players who get it, but at the end of the day, it's a bit of fun. Mm. Like I'm sure every per- football nut in the world would probably pick a different person. Yeah, exactly. So it's just subjective. And and Sammy's been quoted along the, you know, we don't play for individual awards, even though Grisman might argue that. But, <laughs> um, look, you're, it's a team sport. And if you get recognised as an individual, that's great. It's great for your profile and all the other stuff that goes with that. But really, it's not really what we play for. It's not what we prepare our Matildas for. We prepare to win the World Cup. We prepare to qualify for Olympics, win Olympics. We don't really care who is winning. Although, when it happens, it's great. It's and a great it, little tap on the shoulder yeah. and say, well done. And, and that's it. And it stirs great conversation Of course as well. it does. Yeah. So it's interesting the way that football's fandom has changed as well so you have people supporting individual players rather than than clubs now i work with a lady who's she told me that her son was into football and i asked which team or you know who who he followed and she said neymar so you know so if, he, he was a barcelona fan when neymar was a bus and now he's a psg fan presumably um so that's something that's changed and you see the abuse that people get uh online if they say something about uh, Ronaldo or Messi, like the the fanboys of one or the other, will will jump on them. I did a, obviously during the World Cup, they were both two prominent players, and every time I I drew a cartoon featuring one of those, the the fanboys from the other one would would get on at me. I think I I drew a picture of um, of Messi scoring his god a diagram of his goal against Nigeria, where he bought bought down that long dropping ball with with two touches on his thigh and then smashed it in and. Probably got more abuse for that cartoon than all of the other insulting things I've said over the last four years. Um, so yeah, that's that's just an interesting dynamic. I think. And it shows the power of why Juve went all in to get Ronaldo as well, because it's that kind of similar kind of currency as well. Now, stage you mentioned before. We do it for World Cups, qualifying for World Cups. It's a beautiful segue into our next topic and why we're so glad to have the two of you here today. Because as we mentioned, Thursday night you're on the plane to Paris. And by the time some people might listen to this on a Sunday, we'll know the Matildas World Cup draw, which you can see on Optus Sport, of course, before we show every game of the World Cup next year, which we cannot wait for. It's 4 a.m. Sunday, but of course, all the on-demand replays and reaction you need to get will be there on Sunday, including hopefully some conversations with yourself if all things go to plan on Sunday and you're happy with the draw already and you're you're up and about. Um, But we wanted to check in before you go and go, we're just over six months out. Um, How are you feeling and, and what's the status quo at the moment in terms of uh, the build-up to the big one? Yeah, look, uh, as I've said a few times this week in the media, we've basically got our preparations uh, penciled in. Uh, We're just waiting on the draw to ink all those and and dot our I's and cross our T's and see who we are going to play and target. We've got most of that settled, as I said, but um, 
look, it's it's a very exciting time. It, it really narrows the focus. Like we all want to get there and be at our best, but when you know who's in your group and which group you're in and who you might play should you progress, it really narrows your focus on what you have to prepare for. Uh, so that's the pleasing part. You really know whether it's going to be a South American team, an African team, a European team. We know what kind of opponents then we need to adjust for, uh, who we might target to play, who might be a similar playing style. All those things that are very important for us to prepare for in a national team when, when you only get limited time together. It's not like a club team where you can prepare, obviously, week in, week out. So the moments you have together are precious, and, and we've got to ensure that everything we do in our prep gives us the best possible chance to beat our peak tactically and technically, mm. obviously. And and when the players aren't with us, we need to ensure that they're at their physical and mental peak as well for when they do come into camp, we're ready to uh, hit the ground running. Okay, we mentioned earlier that your byline had vanished from the media, but the media's loss is actually Australian football's gain because uh, a lot of... That's re- also subjective. <laughs> 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 no. Hey, we can have it back any moment, you know, it's... I'm feeling very uncomfortable because <laughs> across the table is my old boss and next to me is my new boss, so I can't respond in either way. Day, day will be on your side. Um, but, you know, you're off doing a fair bit of scouting for the national teams at the moment. Um, what goes into the next few months in terms of once the draw happens, best worst case scenarios for you in terms of what you see as um, the, you know, stage talk about research, preparation, all that kind of stuff. Uh, what are the best worst case scenarios that you're bracing for on, on Sunday? Well, you can't prepare for what you don't know will happen. So as soon as that draw is finalised, that's when that's when we'll all kick into into action. We'll know what opponents we'll be facing at the World Cup and then that will also shape um, the way we go about scouting those teams and also in between all of that, you've still got to prepare for all of the international windows leading up and making sure we're prepared for those individual matches to make sure we can perform at our best for those games. Um, it, it does involve a lot of logistics and juggling and planning and making sure, you know, all of the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed um, to make sure that when we get to the World Cup, we, we're fully prepared and we know exactly what team we're going to face and, and all of the, the different patterns and trends of the way that they play and then trying to simplify that so that the players can best go out and execute the game plan. So it's really one of those ones where it's a little bit of a, um, it's a waiting game and then as soon as that draw comes out, on Sunday morning, um, then that's when the real fun begins because that's when it becomes real and then you know exactly what you need to do to prepare to make sure that we're ready for those matches. You've been working on your poker face for when the uh, the draw is made. So when the, say like you're drawn against France, England, whatever, and the, ca- and the camera is cut to you, you've been working on that? Yeah, and, you know, swearing in a different language. <laughs> nah, I actually, I actually think we've got to the point now um, as a team where it actually doesn't matter who we get in our group. Uh, the, the If we're in the top pot, which we probably should be and will be, uh, the second pot of teams are so close. They're all so good. Uh, it ranges from a Norway, a Spain, a Sweden, a Brazil or a Holland. And every single one of those has won a European Championship or a World Championship in the past period of time in women's football. So it doesn't matter who you get. Will you tell me afterwards who you really do want and who you think is rubbish and you can beat? No, nah, look, I think we can beat everyone. Uh, look, in the top six, we've got America and, and Germany. Uh, we've got France and England and Canada. We've done well against USA recently. We had a 2-2 draw with Germany at the Olympics. We were up 2-0 and they, they got two goals back. We really should have won that game 4 or 5-1 and they won the gold medal. So if you're beating or competing with the World Cup winners, if you're beating or competing with the Olympic gold medalists, it shows you're in the ballpark. 
uh, to be competitive. The, the idea at the World Cup, and I think I always use Croatia as my example, it's the team that has the rhythm, the momentum, the confidence in a tournament, possibly a bit of luck. You look back, Croatia had those two penalty shootout wins and one where Modric missed the penalty in in uh, normal time and then had to score one in the shootout. So the pressures of those moments and those moments, and we know football's a game of moments, and that little bit of luck and making that moment happen is really sometimes a discerning moment between who goes through and who doesn't. So given all those things and so long as we're in the best possible shape we can be in going in, there's no reason, as I've said, that we can't, we, we can't be one of the teams who are challenging for the time. I'm going to end with the toughest question of all. When in the World Cup final, Sam Kerr nods in a 96th minute winner, are you picking up the water bottles and smashing them on the ground or are you surging on to go hug <laughs> one of your players? Yeah, someone will have to restrain me. Uh, yeah, but look, it was great to see Klopp run on the pitch and I, I think he'd cop that fine in that moment. But um, oh, look, the emotions of the game are just so much, so much at such a higher level for a coach than for a player. Players are in the action, they're running, they've got the adrenaline, they're in, everything's happening for them. And, of course, they feel that passion and emotion, but they're running around and using that, that, that energy in the game. A coach are just watching almost all these pictures unfold in front of you and you're trying to have that small bit of influence where you can during the game, but really you know that all the work's been done beforehand and there's so much you can't control in that actual game. So... There's so many different feelings and emotions that a coach has that a player doesn't really get to experience. And I think Klopp and Mourinho both are examples of that outlet coming out in those in those pivotal mm. moments and the pressure that they were feeling in those times. So it is a bit different and, and hopefully we're in that situation. And, and again, if we keep doing everything well, there's no reason why we can't be putting ourselves in that position to, to being that far. I said I was going to leave the tough question the hardest one? last. <laughs> Do you feel the pressure stage six months out? No, not at all. Not at all. I, I feel confidence. I have a great amount of belief in our staff and in our players. I think we got the best staff in the world, um, present company included. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say excluded. No, I usually do, but here. That was you, Dave. Congratulations. And we've got a fantastic staff who, who as Kate said, work their butts off around the clock, 24-7. Uh, we've got a great playing group who are all, all striving to, to pull in the same direction. So when you've got those important parts of the jigsaw puzzle moving in the same direction then you give yourself the best possible chance brilliant well, we're all behind you and and thanks for sharing that insight in this in this podcast bit of depth there so but we hope you enjoyed it i certainly was, was hanging on to every word from both of you but the and you too dave um but the, the, <laughs> i don't want him to draw a picture of us <laughs> Ooh, uh, when you're at that level that, that's what you're up just for. make sure you don't react at the world cup draw because then you won't have any ammunition <laughs> dave you've been studying alan's contours and things like that in the last 40 minutes Sketched it all down here. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Hey, the last bit of the podcast is going to be at a sort of fast money pace. Just go through a few different topics to add a, a bit of different um, conversation what we're talking about. Um, the first one I want to touch on is the, the Copa Conquestador. I think that's what it's called. Um, with Boca and River from Argentina. The, ma- the, the vision, if you haven't seen it, of Boca being sent off by their fans as they go to Madrid is as extraordinary as the vision we saw last week. But Dave, the idea of a Copa Libertadores final in Spain... I know in these circumstances they felt like they couldn't play it in Buenos Aires, but what comes next if you start to sacrifice the sanctity of it? Yeah, I think we've seen this in various competitions in the last few years, major finals being moved to different continents. Famously, uh, about 10 years ago, the Premier League floated the idea of uh, the Game 39, wasn't it? Whether they were going to play a match in in uh, different corners of the, of the world. Uh, as a 
speaking as a football fan, I'm against it. It takes the game further away from those people who uh, who are most invested. People who, for football clubs, are the core of their communities, even at, at large clubs. Um, and with regard to the Copa Libertadores specifically, uh, I think that the authorities there missed a chance to reward the game or award the game to Boca. Uh, there'd been a clear precedent of um, fan misbehaviour of that kind resulting in uh, the, the victims being awarded the match. And it would have presented the South American authorities to say, look, these are the consequences for this kind of behaviour. Your team loses the match. Um, but to move the game to... To Madrid, it just seems to be money driven. It's slightly more palatable than it being played in Qatar. <laughs> um, but if it was going to be played overseas, then you would imagine that they could play it either in another South American country, which was still accessible to supporters, or even Genoa offered to to host the that that match. And there's a historical and emotional link between the cities of Buenos Aires and Genoa. And specific, especially with um, the tragedy that happened in Genoa uh, earlier this year, uh, it would have been a real boost for, for that city. But essentially, I'm against these kind of games being taken overseas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Stadge, another one for you. Um, Gareth Southgate was complaining over the weekend that of the players that available in the Premier League last weekend, only 54 were eligible to play for England. That's around 25%. Your reaction to that? Yeah, look, it's it's a it's a real tough one, uh, and with Brexit coming up, it'll be interesting all the all the dynamics that play out there in the Premier League. Uh, how many foreigners they allow, and and it's not really for us to comment on their league, other than just to be observers and fans as we are. But really, they're, they're questions for our league as well. Mm. How many foreigners should be in an A League team and in a W League team? And um, you know, I know that that there's some big questions going on around that at the moment, and um, you know, there's obviously the trade-offs between quality of the league and appeal of the league versus promoting your own, and that's a that's a fine balance. You know, you go you go one or two players the wrong way, and and one or the other may suffer. And here in Australia, as we know, we need to do everything to broaden the appeal of of the A League and make it as exciting a product as we can. Yet we still need to ensure that we give as many Australian players a go as we can. We've we know with only ten teams. And foreigners in our league, it's it's really hard for young players to, to get a chance in our league. And, and Azani, we use him all the time mm. as an example, he had the chance to to play and, and he's gone on, barring injury of course, he's gone on to play in Europe. So we need to ensure that we give Australian kids a go. I think in the W League we've got the balance exactly right. Uh, we've got the right amount of foreigners that boost the quality and the depth of the league and makes it a really competitive match, a really competitive training environment and still gives enough opportunity for young players to go. So in the W League, um, I, I'm pretty confident the number's right. In the A-League, I, I think that's an evolving vehicle, especially if expansion comes in as well as to what the right number is. But but definitely the Socceroos, in my eyes, all the time need to be the first priority in determining what that number should be. Interesting, Chad. We could spend an entire podcast on it, and perhaps of at some course. point this season we absolutely will. Did anyone see over the weekend Raphael van der Vaart named his all-star 11, the greatest 11 he's ever played with. And Peter Crouch got a Guernsey up front. And I think Crouchy replied, knew you'd be a top manager lad uh, on Twitter when he saw that 11, which beggars the question, the three of you, if you had to pick the randomest player in your favourite 11s of all time, one, two, three. Dave, who are you going for? It's pretty obvious, and I'm sure the other, the other guys will um, 
go for the same player, but uh, Jan Agafjortov, the uh, <laughs> the Norwegian striker who played for Swindon in our, our uh, solitary Premier League season. What a player, what a man. What a personal choice. Okay. <laughs> I don't know about who would go in my favourite all-time team, but I think the most obscure name I've ever had on the back of a jersey is Juher Markella, if anyone remembers him at Sydney FC, when he managed to score two goals in, in two games and then collapsed two sets of fences in front of the Cove. <laughs> I decided to get his name on the back of... My jersey when I was a young Sydney FC fan, and he, of course, went on to play about a handful more games, and no one's ever seen him Was since. he the Finnish guy? Yes. yes. That was him. The surgeon, that was his yes. name, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Because, because he was paid a truckload of money and knocked off at lunchtime every day. <laughs> he was, uh, yes, very obscure player, but lives long in my memory. Me? Uh, I'd, I'd probably go for Sinisha Mihailovic, just because he's probably one of the best free-kick takers I've ever seen, and and who, who doesn't love to see a left foot bomb go in. He probably wasn't the best left back or left midfielder in, in his time. He was very good, but he wouldn't be in the best 11 of all time for the, his position. But for free kick taking alone, the excitement and the amount of power and curl he could generate was, was world class. Hey, Dave, one uh, moment that took my fancy from the viral reaches of the internet this week. Did you see in the third division of Argentina, a goal being long-range shot, goal-bound, and a little puppy ran along the goal mouth <laughs> and stopped it. Uh, in its tracks and his team went on to well I don't know if he has a team but the team that was the goal was uh, denied by went on to win the game yep. um, you can see that on the Optusport uh, Facebook page and Twitter page if you haven't seen it yet but you've got a little tale of uh, fandom going to the extremes perhaps not sending a, a dog out unleashed but from your uh, Swindon Town oh, yes. storybook uh, there's a gentleman whose name I can't remember who this week um attended his 2,000th consecutive game. Hasn't missed a game since, I think, 1981. Is that home and away? Home and away, <laughs> every game. And like you have to respect it in the way that, you know, the people who undergo those sort of religious festivals where they beat themselves in the head, you, you have to admire, well, I don't know, I don't know you sort of admire their dedication, but worry about the harm they're doing to their own brain. Because let me tell you, like... <laughs> following Swindon is it's a tough tough choice um he I do know someone who would compete him compete with him for the title of the world's biggest Swindon fan there's a guy who I grew up with I didn't grow up with him but from my hometown who changed his name legally to Swindon Town Dave it's not me <laughs> uh and but it just meant that his friends called him by his initials STD which is of course shorthand <laughs> for sexually transmitted disease it used to really annoy him he used to say STI these days, infection, <laughs> not disease. But yeah, so is that what you were getting at? So you were striving. It was a random story because I had to talk about the puppy running across the goal because it was a brilliant save. There was another one in Paraguay actually yeah, a couple was. of weeks ago. There's a sausage dog ran on and saved the penalty. So maybe this is something they're developing in South America that we should be looking more into here. Kate, have you uh, in your scouting? Is there, have you considered any sort of the the dog based? I don't know about the dog-based saves, but there was that good one that nearly happened a few weeks back in the UK when there was the little kid who was in goals and wasn't really concentrating. There was the dad standing beside the goalpost, and as the shot uh, came in, he just 
have a look at the little <laughs> shelves yeah. and nearly made the save there. So, yeah, I'm sure we can uh, add those to our monitoring list and see if we can find any uh, Australian sh- dogs. Yeah, she'll have a stat on it anyway. She'll have a stat. She'll yeah. give Just you the give amount me a of goals accumulated <laughs> through innocuous events. Or the, or the accuracy of unleashing your dog and the dog making a save. Correct. Like, yes, yeah. the proportion of dogs yeah. running onto the pitch yeah. to save yeah. Nate. Point one two eight seven according to Kate. To wrap up, there's a. I just want to throw some random stats at you that caught my attention, but I want you to try guess the answers before we come up with this, the the sort of the what the hell it all means. And the first one's to you, Stage. How much has Mark? And this is reported. It's not how much Mark Hughes has been paid out through sackings in his career. I don't know. Um, I'll go ten mil. Well, after this week's uh, dismissal from Southampton, the report I saw was eighteen million through his career. Handy Pound work if dollars. you can get a pound. Handy if you can get it. That's not bad. That's not. That's not. That's, it's not a bad superannuation scheme, is it? No wonder, Kate, you jumped from uh, journalism to, to coaching. Um, that surprise, Hughes, this action took so long, and you, the, the, the most surprising thing about the ten games uh, with goals from every team this weekend was that Southampton actually did get on the board, given the record that they were doling up with him. Kate, Manchester United's goal difference. Positive, but single digits. Try minus one. Mm. Ooh. Now, how about that? For the amount of money Mourinho has spent and the amount of reactive football he's played, he can't. Th- th- their team is one of the worst defensive records in the club's history. And it's, yeah, after it would be probably four or five years of David De Gea being their, their player of the year. Mm. And um, even now he can't prevent them from having such a leaky defence, especially this morning after his... Error for the Arsenal goal. It's a remarkable stat. Um, Dave, who are the only two players in the Premier League to average 10 touches per match in the box? Hint, they're from the same team. Leroy Sané and Raheem Sterling. Boom. Got it. (laughs) Got it. But the thing that I find amazing about that... You've done some reading this week. Yeah, I did, yeah. You might have even read the rundown, perhaps. But the amazing thing about that... (laughs) Is that, Stop spoiling it, David. Still nearly <laughs> forgotten. Yeah. Is they have both scoring every a goal every 128 minutes. Like this, I'd, I'd love to know the stat, and this is the closest I could get to it, of the two of them arriving in the box like clockwork to get on the end of a precise cross from the other flank or from inside the box. It's amazing metronomic and precise attack stage. Because you, you can only dream of having an attack that hums like that. Yeah, I, I think that comes down to philosophy and style of play. I don't think that's fluke at all. Um, you know, we saw we saw a footage we showed, I think, the Matildas, didn't we, about Gary Lineker talking about how fortunate he was as a striker, as a reputation, you know, how he was lucky and he was in the right place to score those goals. And his, his quote was, well, I was in the right place all the time. It's just the ball never got there. You only noticed when the ball got there. So I think that that's the same principle for these two. And when you watch Man City play, their build-up, the patience of the build-up, but then the amount of combination play, to get people in the box and in behind and deliver those balls, that's the that's the end result. It's not a fluke that they have three or four people in key areas in a penalty box and, and have two players with stats like that. And Sana hasn't even played that much this year. Mm. And even Sterling, I think, was on the bench earlier on, has been in and out a little bit. It's only in the recent times he's been more regular. But but they have that with every player. And really, David Silver is there pulling the strings and then you you unleash the cavalry to, to get forward and be creative, and, and that's why you get that. So it's certainly not a fluke. 
No, not a fluke at all. And the interesting thing will be is if anyone can peg them back. And we get the first sight of that this weekend when they play Chelsea at 4.30 a.m. Sunday. A really interesting game on both parts because Chelsea have now hit that flat spot that everyone thought they might struggle with at the start of the season. They're now hitting that, that teething passage. Can anyone here see them causing an upset? Or could this be the weekend that actually Arsenal almost leapfrogged them and form a top four with Spurs, Liverpool and City? Yeah, Chelsea rested a few players this morning, as did a lot of teams. Um, so you know they'll obviously come back and they make a big difference. I think Alonso didn't play as well mm. uh, this morning. So David Luiz and, and yeah. Alonso, yeah, I, I don't with think they someone played. Someone who had Alonso in my yeah. fantasy team, well, that's though, he why did not I noticed play. With David well, there you Luiz go, yeah. as well. Yeah, <laughs> he wasn't in your. Yeah, I'm still beating you though. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about winning though. Um, yeah, so they obviously rested a few players, and Hazard's just come coming back from his injury as well. So now he's had a couple of games under his belt post that one or two-week layoff he had. So, look, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, and even Man United and Tottenham, they're really the big four or five who can genuinely take points off Man City any given day, even yeah. though Man City is is so good. Very interesting for Chelsea this morning. We spoke about it more last week, so we won't talk about it too much now, but if anyone had any, any doubts if Sarri was going to be tempted into the whole N'Golo Kante debate about where he plays, he rested Jorginho this morning and played Fabregas, as he has in the Europa League, in that central midfield position. And uh, the debate will continue, unfortunately or fortunately, depending which way you look at it, um, while those results struggle and teams do get a couple of cheap goals against Chelsea, which Wolves did today. In a did you say cheap or cheek? Loftus-Cheek scored again. He did. He scored on the weekend. He's been scoring for fun. And that was uh, his first start, by the way, since Hitting was in charge of Chelsea, which mm. is really interesting. And that goes back to that 54 players eligible. A player like him must be desperate to start to push his national team cause, but can't get a sniff. He's showing it every game, though. Mm. Every time he comes on, he's influential in the game. Was it two or three in the Europa League the game before? He scored, what, five, six goals already this year in a few appearances? Uh, when you see a player that hungry and that determined and, and producing the quality and uh, at the end of it, you know, hopefully he'll get a bit more of a run. Well, guys, that is, of course, the entree, and it's a fairly sizable entree because next week our European smorgasbord ends for the calendar year, and it's, of course, headline on the Wednesday by Liverpool versus Napoli, Barcelona versus Tottenham. We're going to have Schwartzy and Ned all around Europe covering those games and bringing us all the insight. And uh, by the time we talk next week, we'll know pretty much who gets through the next round. Quick tip before we go, is your mob going to get through? Well, do you want to fly me out to Anfield? I can do a... <laughs> I can do an around the grounds. Paris to Anfield's not that far. Look, if I have to do it, it's fine. You take one for the team. It's fine. I get it. Look, that's tough, but we all know the the arena there and the amount of special European nights they've been over the years. Uh, it'll be tough. Napoli have been very good. Liverpool have been very poor away uh, in the Champions League, especially, uh, and at home they've been pretty strong. So. It'll be tough. I think they have to win by two, yeah, two nil. I think one nil, and they're probably out. Yeah, so they have to win by two, yeah. depending on. Yeah, on you the might other get game. A from Red Star, but yeah, on the other game, yeah, I wouldn't be banking on Red Star. So they have to win by two. I'm still backing. What about Spurs? What about Spurs, Dave? Is the miracle alive? Well, it's going to be hard for them as well. I think the, the common thinking is that Barcelona will rest players because they've already won the group and they've got some difficult La Liga matches coming up. But you're still playing Barcelona at the new Camp, so. Whoever turns out for them is going to be decent. It's going to be a struggle for them. And, you know, Spurs. Lads, it's Spurs, the famous quote. But um, So, I don't know. I hope they get through. I hope they do it. Um, but, yeah, who knows?
You know, as well, we've got an incredible week of football. It wraps up on Friday. Where we're going to be starting the Celtic game against Salzburg, which is make or break for them to get through in a very busy and alive Europa League as well. So, guys, thanks so much for your time, Dave, Kate. Thank you. Safe travel, Stadge. Thank you. We'll see you on our screens on Sunday from another side of the world. All very fun. Good luck. Thank you. And keep your poker face on when the draw comes. I'll try. I'll try. And to you out there, I hope you enjoyed that football chat, the, the warm-up for you for a massive week of football on Optus Sport. Until the next gig and pod, enjoy your football. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.